National Trust Magazine, Summer 2019. Hello and welcome to the summer issue of National Trust Magazine. I'm Alan Power, Head Gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire, and I also present some of the National Trust podcasts. Today I'll be taking you through some of the highlights of the summer magazine, including news, features, letters from Trust members, and I'll also be chatting to some of the Trust staff, writers and experts who've contributed to this issue. First up, then, is National Trust magazine editor Sally Palmer with her summer letter. Thanks, Alan, and welcome to this audio edition of the summer 2019 issue of National Trust magazine. Since my visit to the Farne Islands, just off the coast of Northumberland, I find my mind often wanders back there. As I stare at my computer screen, I once again feel the sharp pecks of the Arctic terns on the top of my hat and hear the ceaseless cacophony of the colony on the cliffs. I found the experience of being so close to wild seabirds profoundly moving and left with renewed respect for the rangers who care for these islands. A few hours south of the Farns, Wentworth Castle Gardens reopens this summer, thanks to a partnership between Barnsley Council, Northern College and the National Trust. The gardens were the result of an 18th century rivalry. Today, they are South Yorkshire's only Grade 1 listed parkland and gardens. Find out how new research into the historic family at Cork Abbey in Derbyshire has led to a contemporary appreciation for the need for humanity and kindness. And we also have articles for you on the American National Trust, the Royal Oak Foundation, and the latest in nature-friendly farming. Thanks, Sally. That was National Trust magazine editor Sally Palmer with her summer letter. And now for the news roundup. Here's Olivia Vinall and Glenn McCready to tell you about what's been going on around the Trust. Milestone celebrations for Wiccan Fen. The Trust's first nature reserve, Wiccan Fen in Cambridgeshire, celebrates two milestones this year. It's 120 years since we purchased our first two acres of land here, and 20 years since we launched the Wiccan Fen vision. The Fen is one of Europe's most important wetlands offering a window onto a largely lost landscape. Less than 1% of original fen survives in East Anglia, of which Wiccan fen is a fragment. The nature reserve was too small and isolated to guarantee the survival of its rare and numerous species, so in 1999 we launched the Wiccan fen vision, a 100-year plan to create a diverse landscape for wildlife and people over 20 square miles. By expanding the reserve, We're giving people space to explore and wildlife the extensive landscape that it needs. This year, we're celebrating the success of the vision so far. We've already increased the size of the nature reserve from 358 hectares, or 885 acres, to nearly 800 hectares, nearly 2,000 acres, and we've opened or improved access to some 30 miles of Fenland. Standing up for nature. In our last issue, we wrote about the need for new laws to help reverse the decline in the UK's precious wildlife. The government has since released its draft environment bill. We are concerned that it's not strong enough to protect nature. There's time to fix this before the final bill is launched later this year. We are working with partners to urge government to deliver stronger legislation. Codename Hillside. 
A permanent exhibition at Hewenden in Buckinghamshire opens this summer, shedding light on the house's top-secret past as a site for mapping during the Second World War. Codenamed Hillside, Hewenden became the hub of operations for producing maps for bombing campaigns, including the Dambusters raid. The exhibition draws on original photographs, records and memories of personnel. In Nature News, rangers at Blakeney in Norfolk have confirmed that grey seal pup numbers last year surpassed 3,000 for the first time since records began 30 years ago. Blakeney has become the largest grey seal colony in England. Majestic Landscapes Thirteen Iron Age hill forts in Dorset and Wiltshire will benefit from a project to protect the forts and improve the condition of 332 hectares, 820 acres, of priority habitat, thanks to an award from Postcode Earth Trust raised by players of People's Postcode Lottery. The forts date back more than 2,000 years and are important archaeological and wildlife sites, home to rare butterfly species such as the Adonis Blue and the Marsh Fritillary. Trust Ranger Clive Whitbourne says, The hill forts reveal much about the way of life of our ancestors. We are now recruiting and training hill fort heroes, volunteers to help us look after these special sites. Larger than life. Visit Shugborough in Staffordshire this year and you may find our conservators tackling the job of restoring some of the Trust's largest and most delicate artworks. The set of eight paintings are rare fantasy classical landscapes known as Capricci. Unusually, the 18th century paintings are mostly distemper, a medium where the paint pigment is mixed with glue. The Trust's painting conservation advisor, Tina Sitwell, says, we will be using an adhesive to soften and reattach the flaking paint and stabilize the canvas. It is a daunting task on such large paintings. Six of them are nearly three meters high, with the largest two being over 3.5 meters wide. And those were some highlights from the news section. Our next column is from the Director General, and here to read her summer letter is Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director General. Getting outdoors is one of the real joys of summer for me. It's a perfect chance to reconnect with the inspiring places in the countryside we love. Whether it's a gentle family stroll along a butterfly trail at Wiccan Fen in Cambridgeshire, or charging across the Dunstable Downs in Bedfordshire on a Trust 10 run, there's something on offer for everyone. I was particularly struck by a recent letter from a member who wrote to me about her family holiday in the Lake District. She has multiple sclerosis and the long walks she used to take were a very distant memory. She wrote to me about how our off-road mobility scooters had helped her fall in love with the outdoors again. Before multiple sclerosis hit, she had always enjoyed walking and the sense of achievement it gave her. Something I think we can all appreciate. I was so touched that our organisation could give her a bit of her freedom back. More than 60 of our places provide powered mobility vehicles free for our visitors to use and we're growing the number of places that offer trampers that work on rough terrain. This member also wanted to say thank you for the really warm welcome that she receives at our properties. It's really important to me that everyone should feel welcome no matter who you are or where you come from or what interest you have. It's because people want different experiences from our places that we have a wide range of projects happening at the moment. 
We're shining a light on the role that Hewenden and Buckinghamshire played in the Dambusters raid. We're bringing a Greek garden to life at Sissinghurst in Kent and we're undertaking a £4 million restoration project at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk. I'm particularly looking forward to returning to Wentworth Castle Gardens. The Trust is reopening it in partnership with Barnsley Council and Northern College. It's South Yorkshire's only Grade 1 listed landscape. It has a wonderful formal garden and 500 acres of parkland. It's a really magical place and really well worth visiting. The Trust is something for everyone, so wherever you want to visit us this summer, thank you for your support and I hope you have a really great time. Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director General. Now for our cover feature, Nature Safari. National Trust magazine editor Sally Palmer visited the Farne Islands in Northumberland and discovered that you can get closer to wild seabirds than you'd ever imagine possible. The reader is Olivia Vinall. Look! Where? Over there! In the water on the left! Oh! There's good-natured jostling as everyone on the boat stands up at the same moment. Then, a spontaneous cry rings out as we all spot the grey, gracefully curving backs of bottlenose dolphins suddenly crowding the water. We fumble for phones and cameras, exclaiming, pointing, making space for each other to see. I can hear the huff of water from blowholes and the sucking sound as they draw in air and dive back beneath the waves without breaking their endlessly flowing movement. Abruptly, they've gone. We settle back onto our wooden benches, turning to each other and marvelling. As the boat picks up speed and the skipper happily informs us over the tannoy how lucky we've been to see so many so close to the harbour, I feel incredibly privileged. The dolphins are a gorgeous, unexpected treat, and they're not even the main reason most of us are here. We are about to land on Inner Farn, the largest of the small, rocky Farn Islands, and one of the best and most accessible places in the world to see seabirds up close. There are 28 islands, divided into the inner and the outer group. Eleven are skerries, only visible at low tide. They feel wild and remote, and yet the nearest is just a nautical mile off the mainland. The islands have been inhabited for more than 1,300 years, first as a place of solitude and retreat for St Cuthbert and other monks and hermits, then as a garrison during the reigns of Mary I and James I, 1553 to 1625. They were used by tenants who grazed them and harvested eggs, birds, eiderdown and seals. Later, lighthouse keepers and their families kept their lamps burning, warning ships away from the dangerous rocks. In 1838, Grace Darling, the 22-year-old daughter of lighthouse keeper William, looked out of her window on Longstone Island in the early hours of the 7th of September and saw the wreckage of the paddle steamer Forfarshire strewn across Big Harker Island nearby. The seas were much too rough for lifeboats to set out from the mainland, but Grace could see desperate figures clinging to the rocks. She roused her father. Together they rowed almost a mile through the storm to rescue five of the nine survivors and take them back to the lighthouse. Grace looked after them while her father went back for the rest. Nine others escaped on Fourfisher's lifeboat, 
but the remaining 62 passengers and crew perished. This was a time when women were thought incapable of daring feats, and Grace became an overnight celebrity. Portraitists clamoured to paint her, donations, gifts and marriage proposals poured in, but Grace tried to maintain her reclusive life on the farms. At the age of just 26, she contracted tuberculosis and died. By the year of Grace and William's rescue, the situation for the farm's wildlife had become desperate. Bird and seal populations, already fragile, had been brought to dangerously low levels by egg collectors and poachers. Charles Thorpe, Archdeacon of Durham, was worried enough by the situation to first lease the islands and then to buy the inner group. He employed watchers to protect the wildlife, thought to be the first rangers in the world, but he died just a year later, and the situation deteriorated even more. Further damage might have been irreversible, but for a Norfolk banker, Hugh Barclay, who visited Innerfarn in 1887. Horrified, he assumed control, leased the inner group, and provided new watchers at his own expense, one of whom was Robert Darling, a nephew of Grace's. All the islands were eventually bought by public subscription, and their future was permanently assured when they passed into National Trust care in 1925. They were given National Nature Reserve status in 1993. I'm thinking about these pioneering conservationists as our boat pulls up on the jetty on Innerfarn, where today's custodians are smiling a welcome. Two rangers look after the farns year-round. During the summer, they live on Innerfarn and Brownsman, joined by seasonal and volunteer rangers most of whom are in their 20s with conservation or ecology backgrounds. There's limited solar power and no running water. The rangers monitor the birds, manage the habitat, and make sure their visitors have the time of their lives. Just three islands are accessible to the public, Innerfarn, Staple and Longstone, and those only at certain times of the year and when the sea is calm enough for the boats to run. The reason for the careful management of visitor numbers becomes clear the moment we step off the boat, because there are nesting birds everywhere. On the cobbled path and along the boardwalk crossing the island, in the doorway to the tiny chapel of St Cuthbert, round the entrance to the small shop selling souvenir guidebooks and toy puffins. Before I have a chance to register any more, there's a loud shriek and I feel a sharp tap on the top of my head. The tap is followed by an ominous splashing sound and a fishy odour. I glance up. An arctic tern is wheeling away, having made her opinion of my proximity to her eggs quite clear. I realise why we've been advised to wear hats. Adaika Rodriguez, one of the rangers, is laughing. It's not just humans, she assures me. I've seen them pecking rabbits and chasing gulls out of the colony. The Arctic terns only nest on two of the Farn Islands, Innerfarn and Brownsman. Those are the islands where the rangers live, and the terns choose to nest very near to us. She indicates the tower behind us, the small garden at the foot of which is covered in carefully marked out nests. The bigger gulls feed on the terns' eggs, she says, but our presence puts them off. The terns overwinter in Antarctica, returning each summer to nest on the farns. Geolocator programs carried out in collaboration with Newcastle University 
and the British Trust for Ornithology, BTO, have shown them to travel up to 60,000 miles, 96,000 kilometres per year, the equivalent of twice round the globe. They weigh less than 100 grams and live for up to 30 years. Following the boardwalk across the island, I leave the terns behind and pass some gorgeously fluffy eider ducks sitting on their nests, puffed out like pillows. A little group of early ducklings is having a swimming lesson on a sheltered pool, chaperoned by a couple of adults. I soon arrive at a small cliff where volunteer ranger Luke Moyer is holding forth next to a low rope, pointing out the differences between common guillemots and razorbills from the black and white mass covering the rocks. Shrieks and caws fill the air. There's an unmistakable aroma of bird droppings, and the cliff itself is white with guano. Luke enthuses. The razorbills are sleeker, cooler, edgier than the guillemots. Their white eyeliner is rather better applied. Looking closely, I concede an elegance and dignity to the features of the razorbills, but anything the guillemots might lack in sartorial elegance, they more than make up for in numbers. There are thousands of them. With Luke's help, I can soon also identify kitawakes, shags, and fulmers among the throng. The rangers survey the main bird species on the island several times a week throughout the nesting season. As well as counting them from the land, they venture out early in the morning on boats, armed with binoculars and clickers. It sounds straightforward, but it takes practice to pick out a group of ten individuals from several hundred birds at a distance, especially since staring at cliffs through binoculars from a moving boat might trigger seasickness in even the hardiest of rangers. The farns have well-established breeding colonies and are a reliable migration stopover for both rare and common birds. They're located close to the shelter of the mainland, yet protected from ground predators such as mice, rats, cats and dogs. There are nesting sites to suit the varying needs of each species, and the surrounding seas are rich with fish, especially high-protein sand eels. Leaving Luke, I encounter countryside manager Gwen Potter standing in the centre of the island in a scrubby area dotted with what look like small penguins. These are the Farn Island's world-renowned Atlantic puffins, splendidly adorned with their characteristic coloured bills, standing sentinel beside their nests. Puffins mate for life, separating over the winter months while they're out at sea and reuniting on their return to the island each year. It's June, too early in the season for any sign of fluffy pufflings. I can't see any eggs, because the birds nest underground in sandy burrows about an arm's length deep. Every five years, the Farn Islands rangers undertake a puffin census. Gwen says, We first look for signs that a burrow is occupied, footprints, sticks, guano or fish in the entrance, birds returning to nests with beakfuls of sand eels. These signs are usually enough to indicate whether or not a burrow is occupied, but occasionally it's more difficult to establish whether a pair of puffins is in residence. If that's the case, we reach inside the burrows, gently feeling whether puffins are below. We also check a small number of burrows for chicks. That's to establish productivity of the colony, how many eggs have actually hatched. If a pair fails to breed, 
Fewer pufflings means fewer adult birds growing up to continue the population. That's not where we want to be for the sake of the puffins, but it's also a clear warning signal that there's something wrong more widely with the health of the ocean. Other organisations conduct similar surveys at other colonies. The 2018 census registered an overall increase in numbers on the farms, but internationally, findings show that puffins are in decline. The evidence suggests populations are being affected by factors such as recreation, invasive species and overfishing. Gwen says, More widely, they're affected by climate change, with increased frequency and intensity of storms and prey moving as water temperatures change. Colonies further north are declining, particularly in Iceland and probably because of a shortage of their preferred food, sand eels. Previously disregarded by humans, these small cold-water fish are increasingly fished for use in animal feed and fertiliser. Gwen continues, If the adult birds have to travel further out to sea to find the sand eels, and if those sand eel populations have been reduced by humans or driven further away by changing waters, it takes a toll on the adult birds, and there's an impact on the next generation. To better understand the international picture, and how the Fine Islands puffins fit into it. From next year, the Trust is funding the ranger team to monitor the puffin burrows annually. Gwen says, Monitoring more frequently will really help us understand the main factors affecting the puffins and how we can best help them. It's time to leave. As we clamber back on board our boat and head back to the mainland and the prospect of a hot bath, the rangers thank us sincerely for coming. Adaika Rodriguez says, Without the visitors, we simply couldn't do our work. It's been a magical afternoon, an experience that will remain in my heart for a long time to come. Almost 200 years ago, those early conservationists realised how important it was to protect the birds and their way of life. Now, it's our turn. The Farne Islands can only be accessed by boat from Seahouses Harbour on the Northumberland coast and only at certain times of the year. Four private companies sail to the islands. There is a charge for your trip payable to the boat company. National Trust members can land free of charge. There is a landing fee for non-members. For full details, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash islands Now, Wentworth Castle Gardens is South Yorkshire's only Grade 1 listed parkland and gardens and is one of the UK's great 18th century landscapes. Dotted around its 63 acres of formal gardens and 500 acres of parkland are 26 listed buildings and monuments, including a dramatic hilltop folly, Stainborough Castle. The resident wildlife includes a deer herd, buzzards, herons and great crested newts. Joining me now on the line is Wentworth's lead curator, Andrew Morrison. Well, Andrew, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, and I'm very interested in to hear what you've got to say. So, the gardens were created by Thomas Wentworth, and really, he, from what I can gather, he created them to ensure his legacy. Is that right? Yes, Thomas Wentworth thought he was going to inherit the amazing estate of Wentworth Woodhouse from the Earl of Strafford. But unfortunately, when the Earl of Strafford died in 1695, he didn't leave it to Thomas. 
Thomas felt very bitter about this. And so although he was actually ambassador for Britain abroad, firstly in Prussia and then in The Hague, he waited until he could get hold of an estate that was next door to Wentworth Woodhouse uh, called Stainborough Park. <laughs> Clever strategy. He waited 13 years, bought it, uh, and then created his own inheritance, his own dynastic landscape uh, by literally using the latest thinking around garden design to really, um, as the phrase goes, outrank and outswank uh, those that did inherit Wentworth Woodhouse. So there was definitely an air of kind of competition and showing off about his intention to purchase right next door, do you think? Oh, very much so. I mean, he he was... He had a big house and a big estate in Twickenham. He could have just ignored South Yorkshire, but he, he deliberately waited till the Cutler family who owned Stainborough were ready to sell and then purchased it. Uh, and it's across the valley from Wentworth Wood House. So now in the modern landscape, the M1 cuts them up, but you can see, they can see each other. So he was very much about creating a landscape that would be in competition and ultimately better than uh, that which he would have inherited from Wentworth Woodhouse. It did end up being held in very high regard by the time he died, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, he died in 1739 and in 1740, when his son William inherited, it was described as one of the best gardens in England. Downslope from the house, he created a, a cascade uh, of Chatsworth proportions, huge set of lakes and fountains, all sorts of water features running down the hill to a serpentine river at the bottom. And then uphill from the house, he decided to create very formal wilderness type gardens, which became known as the Union Jack Gardens. He topped the whole thing off by building a fake medieval castle right on the top of the hill, which could be seen for for miles around. He was about showing off, but it was also, it had a lot of meaning for him and for his contemporaries as well. And it was, say, by 1740, described as one of the best gardens in England. And his son, thankfully, continued the development, didn't he? William, though, had different ideas. So he thought his father's very formal landscape was old-fashioned. So he undid quite a lot of the work that his father did um, and created a much more naturalistic, much more picturesque pastoral landscape. Uh, he removed all of the waterworks and just put it back to, to Parkland. But he kept the serpentine and developed the serpentine at the very bottom of the valley, enlarging it, adding adding ponds to it. And then throughout the gardens, he deliberately placed eye-catchers uh, and new small garden buildings. Uh, he was also an avid plant collector, so he created these amazing greenhouses for plants he was importing from America. So it was a very exotic sort of garden that, uh, that, that William created. It just sounds amazing. It sounds like a wonderful kind of tapestry of the changing styles of gardens in the 18th century. But there are some significant features. You know, there are many, many listed features across the estate, but one in particular, as I was reading about it, stood out in my in my eyes, and it was the obelisk that William rededicated to Lady Mary. That's quite a significant feature, isn't it? It's, oh, well, I think it's an incredibly significant feature. He rededicated a number of his father's structures in the garden, but the obelisk to Lady Mary Worthley Montague was a very early. I mean, it's 1747 when he, he, he rededicates it, and he dedicates it to her for her introduction of the vaccine for smallpox or inoculation against smallpox into this country in 1720 um, which he himself benefited from thomas had all his children inoculated because it was you know it was ravishing the the country at that time but there was a lot of negativity around Lady Mary Wortley Montague's discovery because she was the wife of the ambassador in Turkey. So she brought this 
this idea of inoculation back. But because it came from Turkey uh, and because a woman was being an advocate for it, it was very frowned upon by the establishment doctors of the day. Okay. So, yes, he, he created perhaps the first monument to a living non-royal woman and for her scientific achievements. You know, even today we still talk about how few monuments there are to, uh, to women in the landscape. Now, things changed as they do, you know, through the centuries and Wentworth, you know, like kind of progressed as, as gardens and properties do. But also in society, there was kind of industries and technologies coming. But you've got something quite amazing there, haven't you, in terms of technological development? Yes, yes. So, I mean, unfortunately, when William died, the inheritance uh, problem reared its head again and it eventually passed to one of his sisters who'd married and the, and the Vernon Wentworth family really took it over. Uh, and they were really interested in how you could use technology and also use the money they were able to amass from coal mining on their estates. They didn't directly do it themselves, they leased it out, but it was very profitable. Uh, and they collected plants from across the world much more widely than William was doing. And in order to, to rear them and also to display them in the winter, they decided to create a, a glass house, uh, which was coal-fired uh, because it, for them it was very cheap. So they ran it 24-7, 365 days a year. But the really important and exciting thing is they commissioned Crompton to produce the first glass house that was designed to take electric lighting. So this thing could be, could be lit and heated all year round, and that's what they did. Uh, and that allowed them, of course, to A, have a, a winter garden, but also to rear some really delicate exotic plants. Now, how did Wentworth Castle come into the care of the National Trust? Um, well, the family, the Vernon Wentworth family uh, in 1946 uh, decided that actually they they couldn't afford, nor did they really want to, to live at Wentworth anymore. They had other estates up in Scotland where, where they were homed. So they sold it to Barnsley Council, who were looking for large buildings to create into teacher training colleges following the 1944 Education Act. And so Wentworth became a teacher training college. And when the teacher training was centralised in Polytechnic, in the, in the late 70s, a man called uh, Michael Barrett-Brown decided that what the place should now be is a, a, an adult residential college, and he founded something called Northern College, just in the buildings themselves. But the landscape itself wasn't really part of the raison d'etre right. for that residential college. So a, a trust was established by Northern College and Barnsley, who spent an amazing amount of a number of years in recreating and in restoring the landscapes of Thomas and William particularly, and also the amazing glass house of the Vernon Wentworths until 2017, when unfortunately the economic climate meant that they actually could no longer run a, a business concern at Wentworth Castle Gardens. So they approached the National Trust uh, and we saw the significance wow. of the place and actually saw the potential for how we might work with such a significant garden, but in a different way. So in a way that actually was really was a partnership with Barnsley Council and Northern College, who are resident at the heart of it within the house. And part of the reason we're chatting is because this summer really is the next chapter in that amazing story that we've been, we've been chatting about, you know, with Trust, the Council, Northern College coming together. We're about to open the gates again. That's right. I mean, it's been closed since, um, I think, February 2017. So this uh, late spring, early summer, uh, it will actually open and, and people can come in and enjoy it. Um, and so we're just trying to carry on that idea that Thomas and William and the Vernon Wentworths have, have started 
by bringing the gardens back to their spectacular best, but also delivering something uh, that has meaning in, 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 for, for the local people of South Yorkshire, but also for members and visitors of the National Trust. Andrew Morrison, thank you very much. The Royal Oak Foundation is the American alliance of the National Trust. Its members have raised millions of dollars for the Trust's cause. In this article called Across the Pond, we find out why American philanthropists are helping to look after historic places here in the UK. The reader is Glenn McCready. Priya Graves and George Kerner live in a 115-year-old home near Stanford University in California. Priya is a botanical artist with a passion for landscape history and local politics. George, who is retired, has always liked architecture. They enjoy going to concerts, plays and museums. Since 1995, both have been life members of the Royal Oak Foundation, the American alliance of the National Trust. Priya explains, We were travelling in the UK and visited several National Trust properties. I thought we'd save money if we were members rather than paying admission at each property. So far, so familiar. But when Priya inquired further, the lady at the membership desk suggested that both they and the National Trust would benefit most if they joined the Royal Oak Foundation. Royal Oak, she explained, exists in the US to support the Trust's cause. Its members raise substantial sums of money each year for the Trust, which it uses to conserve some of its most significant properties and fund important projects. The idea of an American National Trust was first floated in 1972, when Trust Councillor Lady O'Neill wrote to the then chair, the Earl of Antrim, to suggest setting up an American sister organisation to garner financial support for the Trust's conservation work. There were bureaucratic and administrative hurdles to clear, but by 1973, the Royal Oak Foundation was ready to be launched. Since then, its members have raised millions of dollars for the Trust's cause. Royal Oak members benefit from free access to Trust places in the UK, but there are also fundraising events to enjoy in the US. In the Findlay Galleries in New York this October, for instance, British artist and Trust supporter Charles Neal is to hold an exhibition of 50 of his oil paintings of National Trust places. He'll donate some of the proceeds from the exhibition to the Trust. Royal Oak also regularly holds fundraising lectures across the country, including in San Francisco, near Priya and George's home. Royal Oak's chair, Lynn Rickabar, was also first introduced to Royal Oak through a lecture series, this time in Boston, by a friend who was on the board. She too takes pleasure in helping to preserve the UK's historic environment. She says, My initial interest in the National Trust was because of the country houses. As I got more involved, I started to love the countryside and the coastline too. I think it's just wonderful. One of Lynn's favourite fundraising appeals was for the ballroom and its contents at Knoll, the huge family home of the Sackvilles in Kent. The team at Knoll was extremely grateful for the donation. Knoll's curator, Francis Parton, says, The funding we received from Royal Oak as part of the Inspired by Knoll project made a huge difference to the ballroom. The room now has a great impact on visitors. It looks and feels cared for and really tells the story of Knoll's long history of aged splendour. Royal Oak's next big project for the Trust is at Blickling in Norfolk. 
the foundation aims to raise $250,000, £190,000, to help preserve Blickling's world-class library and book collection and make it better known to the public. Even with the lectures to enjoy at home, why do people like Priya and George continue to spend large amounts of money helping conserve artefacts and houses thousands of miles from their homes? Priya says bluntly, It's because you guys take care of stuff and we don't. I guess that we feel that you are doing very good work and that's something that we want to continue. The Royal Oak Foundation helping to look after historic places in the UK. Now, I work at Stourhead in Wiltshire and I've been fortunate enough to be on the receiving end of some of the generosity from the Royal Oak Foundation and have managed to restore and replant some areas of the landscape at Stourhead. So I have a very personal gratitude to what the Royal Oak Foundation do. Our next feature is called Meet the Artists. Assistant editor Helen Beer heard about the inspiration behind some of the creative projects of the Trust People's Landscapes programme. In the spring, the Trust launched People's Landscapes, our year-long programme of exhibitions and events. The programme commemorates the 200th anniversary of the Peterloo Massacre in Manchester, a critical moment in democracy, by exploring the stories of places in trust care where people have come together to make their voices heard. As part of the programme, we're working with Turner Prize winner Jeremy Della to bring to life the stories in some of our historic landscapes. Kinder Scout in Derbyshire, Tollpuddle in Dorset, Quarry Bank and Dunham Massey in Cheshire, which both have links to Peterloo and the Durham coast. The commissions have been supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England and with additional support from Art Fund. Helen Beer met the artists at Sutton House in London to find out more. The words you'll hear next are their own. Jarvis Cocker at Kinder Scout in Derbyshire. Kinder Scout was the site of a mass trespass in 1932. Jarvis has created a guided walk with artistic surprises in the Kinder landscape. He says, I grew up in Sheffield, which is near Kinder Scout in the Peak District. The staff from my inner city school used to take us on outward bound weekends and make us do orienteering in the rain. Everyone was thinking, Sir, why can't I be inside watching telly, sir? But once you were out there, it was quite exciting. I like landscapes that other people might find a bit desolate. On Kinder Scout, there's a part called the Woolpacks, granite blocks that have had gales blowing at them for millennia, forming them into amazing shapes. They look kind of like Henry Moore sculptures. To be up there on a nice day walking through them is quite an experience. I hope to make something that will be fun to be part of. All forms of art are about looking at the world and trying to express to someone else what you see there. Anything that I do always involves music because I view the world through song. The point of my art is to encourage people who wouldn't normally go into the countryside. It's about trying to get city people to reconnect with that part of themselves. Go native. Amber Collective at the Durham Coast. Peter Roberts and Ellen Hare are from film and photography collective Amber, which is creating a series of exhibitions and events. They say... We've worked on the Durham coastline in mining villages such as Easington for many years. 
People's Landscapes is a real opportunity for us to go back into that landscape and work with local people to reflect on their history and find out what they're thinking about now. The landscape of the Durham coastline is very redolent of its history. We have a lot of images of this, but we also want to think about the place as it is now. Our work will be about people's memories and their expectations and wishes for the future. Grace Sermon, Gary Winters and their children Hope, 11, and Merrick, 9, at Quarry Bank and Dunham Massey in Cheshire. The family is using video art to reflect on the different perspectives of Peterloo. As part of the wider Peterloo 2019 commemorations, they say... Quarry Bank is a very striking and powerful environment. The Apprentice House has particular resonance, as it's where lots of children lived while working at the mill. Our video at Quarry Bank will explore ideas of community, labour and passion, calling on groups of local people to be part of a collective action. At Dunham Massey, we're looking at the Gray's family situation and circumstances in the days around Peterloo. We are using historical research to portray the Gray family and imagine their discussions and correspondence from their perspective of the tragedy. We're trying to empathise with both sides of the story. People, especially children, might understand the Peterloo story better through our films. We hope they will convey different and maybe less obvious perspectives on Peterloo. Bob and Roberta Smith at Tollpuddle in Dorset. Bob and Roberta Smith is creating a forest of paintings of the 320-year-old sycamore tree in Tollpuddle in Dorset. He says, I'm inviting people to paint the Tollpuddle tree and we'll make each painting into a placard, not of demonstration, but of celebration. There will be a forest of Tollpuddle martyr trees from different perspectives and angles. I don't think any of the Tollpuddle men set out to be a martyr. They were simply meeting to sign an oath to fight for reasonable rights and were charged under conspiracy laws. This made me think, who are the Tollpuddle martyrs of our present time? Working with community groups and schools, I'll run workshops to teach people about portraiture. We'll think about some of the artists around the world who have tried to speak out using their art, and on the other side of the placards we'll paint portraits of these people today. The Tollpuddle martyrs were just ordinary people, trying to better their situation. I think that's what we all want, a better world. Meeting the artists there, I think we all do want a better world. And staying with the thought of a better world, assistant editor Rhea Bowden visited Cork Abbey in Derbyshire to find out about how new research into the historic family there has led to a fresh understanding of human vulnerability and the need for kindness. Since the Trust took over Cork Abbey in Derbyshire in the 1980s, the story of the house has focused on the isolation of the family who lived there. The Harper crews had little contact with the outside world, or, it seems, with each other. Their remote home at the end of a long, overgrown drive, its paint deliberately left peeling and its courtyards overgrown, reinforces the myth of a reclusive family who chose to reject society. Now, 200 years after the death of the so-called isolated baronet, Sir Henry Harper, new research by National Trust staff and volunteers and a team from the Research Centre for Museums and Galleries at the University of Leicester 
reveals a more complex and sociable side to the family that has led to a new and more sympathetic view of their choices. What emerges are stories of interesting, kind and complicated people who experienced moments of loneliness but also enjoyed warmth, support and love. Suzanne MacLeod, Professor of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester, says, Rather than a deeper examination of their lives, the focus had been on gossip or quirks of people's characters, which has stigmatised six generations as eccentric and solitary. In fact, the archive is full of diaries which document busy lives, records of holidays and visits, and interests and passions. We also found stories of great love, friendship and social interaction. In every case, relationships and kindness were their roots out of difficulties. The research has led to Cork's new project, Humankind, which will run for two years. Humankind invites visitors to explore the lives of Cork's inhabitants through displays and installations. There's a chatty cafe where people can sit if they'd like to strike up a conversation. There will also be opportunities to take part in small acts of kindness, inspired by the stories of support and love shown by Cork's past residents. Alison Thornhill, Cork's community and engagement manager, says... There is growing awareness of the harmful impact of social isolation on more and more lives. Through the Humankind Project, we want to explore how Cork can contribute to a contemporary understanding by looking at its stories of loneliness alongside those of kindness, both past and present. Henry Harper, the Isolated Baronet, 1763-1819 Sue Stike, research volunteer, says Henry was stigmatised because he was shy. There was always a part of me that thought we weren't doing justice to the memory of Henry Harper Crewe, the seventh baronet at Cork. After being nicknamed the isolated baronet in the 18th century by a contemporary, tales of his shy, reclusive nature and eccentric interests came to define him and the future generations who lived here. But our new research shows that Henry was a complex individual who was attuned to the fashions of his day. He loved classical architecture and completely remodelled the house in Parkland. His man cave, the caricature room, was his own intimate space where he pasted cartoons on the wall. We think Henry was stigmatised because he was shy and wasn't interested in drawing room culture, so rumours spread that he was reclusive. In fact, we know he went to London each year, but perhaps chose to spend time discussing ideas with his friends in coffee houses. Henry didn't conform in his domestic life either. He married for love, not money or status, falling for ladies' companion Nanny Hawkins. He fathered their first child out of wedlock, a daughter who he loved dearly. The family lived the life they wanted to live, not the life others thought they should be living. I question the myth of this so-called isolated baronet. What was he so isolated from? Not from culture or the love of his family, that's for sure. Winifred Harper Crewe, 1879-1953 Becky Harvey, curator, finds Winnie's letters to her family incredibly moving. Winifred, Winnie to her close friends and family, sent so many letters at significant times in her life that we've been able to build up a really vivid account of her. 
as a young woman, Winnie travels widely, and it's while she's on a trip to Mandalay in Burma, now Myanmar, that she meets her first husband, Albert Bertie Morton Sr., a captain in the Indian Army. They marry on the 10th of August, 1914, right at the start of the First World War. You get a sense from their letters that they marry for love, and she writes that they are gloriously happy. When Bertie is called up to fight, his sporadic contact makes Winnie worry about his safety. He urges her to return home, and Winnie reluctantly agrees, packing up their house and returning to England by boat. She updates her parents every few days, and you can get an impression of her increasing claustrophobia, desperation and loneliness. But she also talks about her military family, saying, There's one good thing about having a regiment. It is a family, and they all help. Eventually, Winnie receives a telegram notifying her of Bertie's death on the 22nd of April, 1916. Holding the telegram is so moving. The brief words would have been life-shattering for Winnie. After Bertie's death, Winnie's father brings her back to Cork to grieve. Her letters show that it was the little things, people chatting or meeting her for lunch, that helped her through her grief and loneliness. Now, an object I love has become a regular column in the magazine, and I'm delighted that joining me in the studio now is Trust Libraries curator Tim Pye to tell us about the object he loves. Tim, thank you for coming in, and it's lovely to meet you. And I'm really curious about the objects you love. You're curator for libraries for the National Trust. So introduce us to the object that you love, please. Unsurprisingly, the object I love is a book. Uh, one of 600,000 books in the Trust across 172 properties. This one is a fairly innocuous-looking book. It's a copy of Kim by Rudyard Kipling, probably his, considered to be his greatest novel. Um, many people will be familiar with it, but it's set in India at the turn of the century and focuses on a young Irish orphan who is struggling to find his place in the uh, intrigues of the British Empire in India. So out of 600,000 books potentially at your, that could distract you as you wander around the amazing libraries in the Trust, this one drew your attention. Why is this particular copy so important to you? Out of those 600,000 books, there are many books that I could have chosen. Yeah. And some that probably look a bit grander than this book does. I mean, this is the kind of book that you would pass by in a second-hand bookshop and not really think anything of. But the great thing about our books in the Trust is that the treasures that they hold are within their pages, more often than not. Taking this book off the shelf, I opened the cover and uh, inside was an inscription that truly made this book a cut above most of our other books in the Trust. And go on, you're going to have to tell me, what was the inscription? So the inscription is in the hand of a man called Apsley Cherry Garrard, who is probably best known for taking part in the ill-fated expedition to the South Pole that was led by Captain Scott. And the inscription inside the front cover reads, Apsley Cherry Garrard, June 15th, 1910, used by the British Antarctic Expedition, 1910 to 1913, Cape Evans, McMurdo Sound. So this book travelled with them? 
So this is one of the books that formed the library that travelled on the Terra Nova to the Antarctic and accompanied that ill-fated expedition and was passed through the hands of most of the people who took part in the expedition, including, we think, Captain Scott. So when you when you were flicking through this book, you know, about this emotional kind of time that this Irish orphan had, you know, there's also the other story going on, I would presume, in your head of the journey this book physically took. Yeah. I mean, the text becomes kind of secondary to this as an object. So less focus on the words that Kipling wrote and more on the journey that this book has been on. It was bought in London, we presume, travelled to the Antarctic, made its way back from that expedition and then found its way onto the shelves at Wimpole Hall in Cambridgeshire. And how, how did it end up in Wimpole? So Wimpole Hall was bought in 1939 by Kipling's uh, daughter, Elsie, and she took with her when she moved to Wimpole some of her father's books from Bateman's, another of our trust properties, which was Kipling's home. Would you mind describing what this book looks like? It's uh, quite small, probably about 12 centimetres high. It's got maroon leather binding. The paper it's uh, printed on is really thin. It's a really cheap production. It was part of a pocket series of Kipling novels that was produced by Macmillan. And I have a picture of it being kind of well-worn and well-handled. Well, I mean, and... it's remarkably fresh-looking, yeah. considering where it's been. But I think that's partly because it was so treasured by Cherry Garrard. I mean, he was a lifelong devotee of Kipling. Bringing this back from the Antarctic, where he'd seen so much strife and turmoil, and where this book had brought him so much comfort, it's obviously been treasured in those years since the expedition. But obviously a very important thing to him, as you alluded to, because an expedition like that, it's all about weight, carrying weight, you know, what you don't need to take, you only take the essentials. And this was something that definitely needed to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they were very conscious of being icebound a lot of the time and needed activity. So on several of the expeditions to the Antarctic, they even took things like printing presses down there to produce books. And Cherry was very keen on taking a full library of many different kinds of literature to appeal to as many of the men as possible. It sits in the collection at Wimpole now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's on the shelves at Wimpole, along with a lot of other Kipling books and some of the other books that have been at Wimpole for 350 years. And you have national responsibility in the organisation. Yeah, that's right. So, so you... I have oversight of whatever we are doing with our books and our attempts to make the books that visitors often see as wallpaper in our libraries as accessible as possible. When did you spot this book in your in your time in the National Trust then? I spotted it when I was uh, writing an article on the Antarctic books that we have in the collection, so wow. books that are associated with expeditions or Antarctica, and this was one of the ones that jumped out as me as being... Pretty special. It's amazing. And it's, it's you know, I, I walk around gardens, you know, as a gardener and I'll find a special plant and, you know, I can fall in love with that plant while I'm there and I'll always remember where it is. And it must be similar for you when you go through the mm. amazing libraries that we look after. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every single one of our books has a unique and interesting story to tell. Some of them haven't got journeys quite as spectacular as this copy of Kim, but because they're still in the place where... They were bought and owned by the people who enjoyed reading them. They still have a lot of uh, aspects of the book that tie them to our properties and make them absolute unique objects. 
Amazing. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Tim Pye, the Trust's Libraries Curator, thank you very much indeed. The Trust is always doing its best to explore new ways to give nature a helping hand. In this article by environmental journalist James Fair, called Back to the Future, we are looking at two intriguing techniques to far more closely with nature, one traditional, one high-tech. In a small field near Rossilli on Gao Peninsula, volunteers are planting hedgerows along earthen banks. They're in the middle of a project to return an ancient farming system to this coastal farmland. More than 200 miles east, in the flat arable land of Wimpole, Cambridgeshire, a small robot moves up and down fields of wheat, gathering data to create a digital map of the crops, which will help maximise efficiency. Gower and Wimpole are just two places where the Trust is experimenting with different techniques to farm more closely with nature. With the 2016 State of Nature report, showing over half of UK species in decline, the Trust has pledged to create and restore 25,000 hectares of priority wildlife habitats by 2025, as well as making at least 50% of its farmland nature-friendly. It has also called for robust new environment and agricultural bills to ensure that nature is at the forefront of any new farming policies. Ideas like these, while not the only solution and of course not appropriate for everywhere, do offer exciting new possibilities for a positive future for nature. 12th century strip farming, the vile on Gower Peninsula. A mass of starlings takes off in an audible thrum of beating wings, rising like a black cloud above the small hedgerow-bound field at the vile on Gower Peninsula, where they have been feeding on a glut of leftover seed. The field is one of a patchwork of 17 on the Vile, one of the most spectacular farm locations in Britain, with the sands of Rossilli Bay on one side and Worm's Head Promontory on the other. Countryside manager Alan Kearsley Evans and area ranger Mark Hipkin, with the help of 80 volunteers, recently began a five-year project here to take the farmland back to the 12th century. They spent 2017 recreating the ancient pattern of 17 smaller fields out of six larger ones by building 2,000 metres of earthen banks. Then they planted 400,000 sunflowers, lupins and other flowers and waited. Last summer the fields were a riot of yellows, browns and greens, while the hay meadows were lit up by purple knapweed and white and yellow oxeye daisies. By returning the vial to the strip farming system, Mark, Alan and their team have brought back birds, bees and butterflies in their thousands. They counted 21 species of butterfly last year and threatened birds such as linnets, skylarks, yellowhammers and chaffs have flourished. The banks provide homes for bees and other invertebrates and create a sheltered microclimate that protects the crops from coastal winds. Alan says, We get half a million visitors a year to this area so if there is anywhere in Wales we could talk about nature and connect with hundreds of people, it's here. Alan and Mark intend to demonstrate some of the commercial possibilities by harvesting 40% of the seeds to sell as bird food. This year they are also sowing a small field of lavender to either sell the plants or use them to make essential oils. Alan says, 
we are putting in 2,000 lavender plants of 10 different varieties. By the end of the year, we'll know what grows best and hopefully how we can successfully commercialise it. There are lessons from the vial that could be applied on a larger scale. Alan says, take the lavender for example. Farmers could diversify by growing rows of lavender in between areas used for sheep grazing. They could keep bees to feed off the lavender and sell the honey. With these changes then comes the opportunity to attract visitors for ecotourism, together providing four possible income streams. He continues, We want to have a financially productive farm and show that it's possible to try different crops, grow without chemicals and still make money. Nature needs a hand and we can't be precious. There's no time to lose. 21st Century Small Robots, Wimpole in Cambridgeshire Meet Tom, Dick and Harry, a trio of robots. Along with Wilma, the digital brains behind the robots, they could revolutionise the way we farm over the coming decades. Resembling luridly painted miniature Mars exploration rovers, they are being developed by the small robot company in Bristol to monitor crop health, seek out and destroy weeds and plant seeds. And they're being tested at the Trust's Wimpole estate in Cambridgeshire. Wimpole's 914 acres of arable land is used for growing cereal crops under the watchful eye of farm manager Callum Weir. The farm is one of 20 in the small robot company's farming advisory group. Callum says, Wimpole is the only organic farm in the group. This makes it an unusual and challenging test site as we have more weeds. It gives the robot more to learn. The robot being tested at Wimpole is called Tom. Callum says, Tom's essentially a robotic agronomist. It's set an area to map and travels autonomously up and down the fields, taking photos of the crops and weeds in high resolution. Tom's photos are stitched together and an algorithm distinguishes what's wheat and what's weed, creating a digital map of all the weeds in the field. The basic premise is that 95% of chemicals used in farming are unnecessary, according to the small robot company. Callum says, Imagine that a robot could be sent out into a field to find where the weeds are and comes back with their precise coordinates. Instead of spraying the entire field with expensive herbicide, you only blitz the places you need to. The robotic revolution could bring particular benefits to small farms. Callum explains that, instead of investing hundreds of thousands of pounds in an eight-ton tractor, farmers would only have to pay out a fraction of that for Tom, Dick and Harry. Tractors compact the soil, and unnecessary cultivation damages soil structure and contributes to soil erosion so nature would benefit too. Other wilder possibilities also exist. Callum says, In the future, robots might be able to plant different seeds in the same field, allowing strip farming on a much bigger scale. Moving away from pure monoculture, just one variety of crop in a field, has many benefits. Take peas and wheat, for example. If you can grow both in one field, the peas fix nitrogen into the soil which helps the wheat grow. The pea flowers attract bees, increasing biodiversity. With weather becoming more extreme and unpredictable, it's harder to know what will grow well, so having more than one crop improves farms' resilience. 
Robotics also has the potential to reduce the reliance of farming on fossil fuels. They're smaller than standard farm machinery, so the robots can be electrically powered and potentially charged by solar panels. Callum says, Trialling new technologies here is very fitting. The third Earl of Hardwick created Wimpole Home Farm as a demonstration farm, using the latest machinery to improve efficiencies and increase yield. Today, our goal is to improve biodiversity and soil health, but the spirit of innovation lives on. For more information about the traditional farming methods on the vial, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash the vial. And if you'd like to know more about Tom, Dick and Harry, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Wimpole dash estate. Now it's time to hear from you. Vashti Gooding in Hampshire wrote about making memories. My partner and I stayed recently at the old schoolhouse holiday cottage in Cornwall and I wanted to share how much we'd enjoyed it. The unusual building and stunning locations made it really unique. Our cottage was on the Roseland Peninsula and was beautifully conserved. We spent our days and evenings exploring the coastal path and nearby beaches, visiting the seals we could see from the path every day. To top it off, we got engaged on Great Mullinan Beach. We will certainly be coming back to the Roseland, perhaps for a future anniversary or to see the landscape in a different season. Sally Vary in South Yorkshire wrote about her love of trust places. The spring issue struck a chord with me and I started to realise what a connection I have with the trust. I live near the Peak District and often walk at Longshore in Derbyshire and enjoy the cafe there. Many boxing days have been spent meeting friends from Manchester for a walk on Kinder Scout and we love to walk through the water gardens near Fountains Abbey and admire the deer from afar. I've also stayed at one of Hardwick Hall's holiday cottages. And Jessica Rose in London wrote to tell us about her passion for painting outdoors. I love painting outdoors, and I've been rummaging through my collections of sketches of National Trust buildings and landscapes and deciding if I want to turn them into something more. I prefer to wait until the weather warms up because the last time I painted in the snow, my watercolours kept freezing over. My trust membership means I'll never run out of inspiring places to draw and paint. Osterley is my nearest trust property, so I go there a lot. Do keep writing. We love to hear from you. We welcome your letters and we read every one of them. You can write to us at The Editor, National Trust Magazine, Helis, Kemble Drive, Swindon, Wiltshire, SN22NA. Email magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash nationaltrust or tweet using at nationaltrust. Coteal in Cornwall is home to Shamrock, the last working, ketch-rigged Tamar sailing barge to be built. Shipwright Sean Blight is responsible for keeping the 120-year-old boat afloat. Writer Sally Robinson travelled to Coteal to meet Sean Blight. Well, my background is obviously boat builder, shipwright. 
I'm a traditional boat builder. Learned from my father. He learned from his father. And my great granddad, he worked barges anyway in his day. He was a stevedore. As for Shamrock, I answered an ad. And I came up just to see. And I've been here for 10 years. To have a boat built in 1899 was unheard of because you had steam, you had engines coming then. And basically, a barge only had a life of about 20 years. They were worked to death. They were the white vans of their day. They were worked to death, beached and left to rot. But Shamrock survived. She got sold into the stone trade and then she run the coast from Truro up, carrying stone for most of the rest of her life. And how did the National Trust come to acquire her? They had it in their heads to do a boat. And then they heard of the shamrock down at Hoo Lake, down at Plymouth. And they went down and had a look at her. So they floated her. They restored her. Well, that was over 30-odd years ago. But could you just tell us briefly what are the big changes you're making? Well, I'm not making no changes at all. I've taken out all the old rotten timber... I'm going to replace the whole deck. It's all done in English oak. It's all as it should be. It's all gone back as it would have been in a day. What have some of the challenges been in this restoration project? Taking stuff out and finding stuff that was rotten, which we didn't expect. <laughs> I can imagine. Massive, great deadwood timbers or transom and, yeah, lots of stuff which we didn't expect. And tell us a bit about who you've got working on the boat with you. You mentioned you've got a very small team here. They're traditional boat builders and they'll work for the good of the boat. And how does it feel? How does it feel to sail her? And does it make you experience the landscape differently? Oh, it's, it's fantastic. And the, the love that people got for her and that no matter where you go with her, there's always somebody that stops you and tells you a tale about Shamrock. And that's from here to Land's End. And you're hoping to take visitors up and down the river on Shamrock? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've got to have the experience because she is still a working boat. There's nothing posh about her. She's got no fancy seats. <laughs> she is what she was in the day, and that's the experience she'll get. There's no machines on her to lift sails or pull ropes. It's all got to be done by hand, and she'll do what she's going to do. It's a really good, fun, exciting thing to be able to do. What the best bit of your job is? What do you enjoy the most? The whole job. It's me. I'm a dinosaur. I still work in pounds, shillings and pence, feet and inches. <laughs> I got wood and I got all wooden boats about me. What's not to like? And I think the scenery, as you say, is quite pleasant. Sally Robinson there meeting shipwright Sean Blight. Now, before we wrap up this summer issue, it's time to hear about just a few things going on around the country. Joining me now in the studio is Sally Palmer to take us through just a few of them. Sally, shall we start with taking a walk on the wild side? Well, on the 6th of July from 2 to 4pm, there's the Wildflower Meadow Walk at Colby Woodland Garden in Pembrokeshire. And that's where you can join gardeners and volunteers on a wander through the Wildflower Meadow and discover how we care for meadow habitats. And there's a big butterfly challenge on the 28th of July from 1 to 3pm at Rossilli in Swansea. Yes, if you can spare 15 minutes to take part in the world's biggest butterfly survey, you can join the rangers at the marquee at the end of Rossilli Car Park. And what's going on this summer for the more sporty types? Well, there's a summer of water sports at Cragside in Northumberland. You can take a kayak on Tumbleton Lake and lessons and guided tours are available. 
So when is that happening? That runs from the 25th of May to the 1st of September. Times vary, so see the website for more details. And for a gentler activity, there's a four-week Yoga in the Garden course starting on the 26th of June at Sudbury in Derbyshire from 10.30 to 11.30 in the morning. That sounds nice. Is that open to everybody? It's for adults only. It's suitable for beginners and intermediate-level yogis. Is that a word? Four sessions are £24. And summer is a great time for outdoor music. What's going on around the Trust? There's midsummer music at Castle Ward in County Down, where you can watch the sunset over Strangford Loch with music from the Belfast Big Swing Band. And when is that on? It's on the 21st of June from 7.30 to 10pm. Booking is essential. Adults are £10 and children are £5. And finally, Sally, this is the 25th anniversary of Heritage Open Days. What is a Heritage Open Day? Heritage Open Days is England's largest festival of history and culture, where buildings, parks, gardens and green spaces are opened up, from factories and shops to council offices, stately homes and follies. It's now wholly run by the National Trust. And many of these places are normally closed to the public, aren't they? So it's a really special chance to explore some fascinating places. Yes, some of the places that open their doors are really well known, like Oxford's historic colleges and Brighton's iconic dome or the familiar Ark of the Humber Bridge. Museums and galleries unlock their archives too, with organisations like Marks and Spencer and the British Film Institute revealing what goes on behind closed doors. So if you've ever passed by a building and wondered what goes on in there, Heritage Open Days are all about finding out. The festival celebrates the quirky, the eclectic and the downright eccentric. So when is this all happening? This year it takes place across 10 days, from the 13th to the 22nd of September. We're expecting more than 5,000 events hosted by organisations across the country. So it's definitely time to stop, reflect and raise a glass in celebration of the anniversary. That's fantastic, Sally. Thank you so much. And those are just a few things going on in Trust Places throughout the summer. Well, that's all from us this summer issue. I hope you've enjoyed it and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.com Dot org dot uk. Or you can call us on 01793 817400. The National Trust magazine Summer 2019 was presented by me, Alan Power. The readers were Olivia Vinall and Glenn McCready. It was produced for the National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding and is distributed by RNIB. All items are copyright. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine.